0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Michelangelo Matos to discuss Prince, Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Pop's blockbuster year of 1984. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Michelangelo Matos to talk about his book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Michelangelo, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure. Now, we could do 20 weeks easily on this book. It is so in-depth. I have a list... <laughs> and uh, we might we might try that. I I had a list of things of topics, you know, because I was 15 in 1984, so this was a big big year for me. I was, and not I, I, and, and it was, but it was objectively a special year in music absolutely. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and what were the circumstances that made it so special? Well, for one
2: thing, the uh, music business had almost kicked itself over a few years earlier. In 1979, the record business lost 11% of its sales, which is a huge amount anyway, but an especially huge amount considering that that since World War II, the record business had been going up every year, year upon year, without fail. It was considered recession-proof. And then in the early 80s, the knock-on effect of that was a lot of firings, of course. A lot of people lost their jobs. but also, And there was a lot of restructuring in the music business. The key thing, or a key thing, is that a lot of bands lost what was called tour support. Record labels giving them money to go on the road to sell their record. And that kind of ended. A lot of record companies stopped paying their bands to tour. So they had to find other ways of making money to go on the road, because going on the road, as we are learning now especially, is very expensive. And what that begat was the very early stirrings of tourist support from corporate sponsors, and that would be things like Pepsi sponsoring the Jacksons in 84 or – you know, Coca-Cola sponsoring Duran Duran's early 84 tour as well, late 83, early 84 tour for uh, Seven of the Ragged Tiger. So those are just two examples. Um, one thing that's not in the book that I think you might find interesting, I certainly did, is that a lot of the tour support for country acts in particular were cigarette brands.
1: Marble, man. In yeah. the range.
2: As, as right. <laughs> but, yeah, like, yeah, Marlboro's and, you know, all kinds of uh, cigarettes were sponsoring tours by the, some of the bigger, older country stars.
1: And you've told us some of the reason why it was such a big year, but for those who didn't live through it, what was so great about 1984? What's the good <laughs> stuff that happened? A lot of classic
2: albums and singles, a hell of a lot of classic singles. Um, It's really the pivot between the old world of the record business of the 60s and 70s and the new world of the 80s and 90s. Because, excuse me, because the uh the record business in the 60s and 70s is album by album you put albums out at a regular paced interval you don't bleed an album drive singles that starts to change a little bit in the 70s because there are certain specific blockbuster albums that do do that the saturday night fever soundtrack which until 84 is the biggest seller of all time that album yields lots of singles, although since it's a multi-artist compilation, it was a little easier to do that. And it was also, you know, tagging a gigantic hit movie, although as one of the big lessons in 84, a little before that, but by 84, it's ironclad, is that the uh, the way that record labels are involved with movie soundtracks has shifted in, shifts utterly by then. Um Saturday Night Fever is sort of the blueprint for that. A little bit Woodstock, too, but Woodstock is a live album, whereas Saturday Night Fever is a bunch of hit singles tagged to a hit movie. And that becomes the formula by 84. So you have a lot of big records and TV and film are both saturated with rock music and pop music for those reasons, as I stated above, but also because you have Prince making Purple Rain, which is one of the biggest hits of the year on a very shoestring budget with a completely uh, you know, newcomer cast nearly. And it's shot in Minneapolis, who cares? And so you have that turning into absolute blockbuster gold and the album beside it. Um, so crossover is a big watchword. A lot of black artists are crossing over to the pop charts and numbers that haven't been seen since the mid '60s. Um, you even start to see a little in reverse. You start to see black stations going what going from black to urban. That had already been a shift, and that means that in '84 you see things like Cindy Lauper and Billy Joel doing really good, doing really well on like the Chicago B- UHF. Um, Video call-in request station, um, like those are the big, re- you know, those are big records in Black Chicago because it's MTV and MTV has brought everybody into everybody's living rooms. MTV is still really segregated in a lot of ways, but it is a lot less so by '84 than it has been at the beginning, or it had been at the beginning, and you know, you're see- you're seeing all sorts of things crossing into the pop realm. Um, The big story of a few years later will be how the middle sort of splits apart. But the big story in 84 is very much how all sorts of people from all sorts of musical realms and backgrounds are going for the main chance, whether it's Herbie Hancock, who in, in early 84 performs Rocket on the MTV Video Music Awards and, you know, Kids everywhere start wrecking their parents' turntables because they want to be a DJ like, uh, D, uh, I'm forgetting his name, DXT. Yeah, DXT. It, that's right, who performs with uh, her, with Herbie on the Grammys. Or, you know, Willie Nelson teaming up with uh, Julio Iglesias and both of them running up to the top of the U.S. pop charts, which neither of them would have been able to do on their own.
1: And talk about radio a little bit too. What was what created the window of opportunity in, in radio?
2: There's a few things. Number one, that divestment in tour support meant that there were fewer old line bands of the 60s, 70s stripe that AOR rock radio wanted to play. There were fewer of those bands and more and more new wave bands. <clears throat> MTV was playing a lot of British new wave because that's what they had available to them in video. And those are the records that the kids in America who had never heard or seen anything like it before, because radio had basically banned punk. They didn't ban it, but they, you know, there were a handful of new wave bands that were allowed on the radio. Typically those with big sounding production, pretenders, blondie, the cars. And so you have Suddenly all there's, you know, there's Duran Duran and there's all these things that your rhythmics that like these kids have never seen before. And Culture Club is a gigantic shock to the system. So radio has to play this stuff. It becomes mandated at the beginning of 1983 when Lee Abrams, who is a consultant with whose consultancy has 80 AOR stations uh, that they basically tell them what to play or, you know advise them on what to play. Those are the stations that have never played this sort of stuff very much, and now they have to play it all the time. So there's this weird little window of about two years where rock radio is forced to to reckon with Michael Jackson and Culture Club. Um, I'll never forget the time that I was riding in my stepfather's car with my family at night, and he always played KQ. KQRS, the Minneapolis St. Paul AOR warhorse, And all of a sudden, little red Corvette starts and he nearly drove the car off the road. <laughs> he, like everybody in the car was really shocked that they were playing this. He was like, I don't think he was offended. I think he was just shocked. We were all just like our jaws were on the floor. Like, what's this song doing on here? And very early on, when I started to research this book, around the same time that I went to the Minnesota uh, Historical Society Library and went through their archives of, of First Avenue band, uh, the the they had all the paperwork that they had rescued from First Avenue, and you know boxes of it, and I went through eighty one to eighty four, and. Uh, that same day, I had gone to the Minneapolis Public Library and I was looking at old city pages from that year, and I found this amazing ad—a two-page ad. I had to print it out in two pages, and it was like, "Here's the top ninety-five point three, or whatever the call, whatever the number of KQRS is," and it was like dotted with, you know, "I'll tumble for you," <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and beat it, and things that, like Thriller, things that will never get played on that station again as long as it exists. And I showed it to a friend who comes from here as well, and and is very aware of this whole thing, but is much younger than I am, and had never seen, didn't even know about this era. Because nobody knew about this era. Because nobody talked about this era for years afterward. It was like a bender that you went on. It was like, it was treated as if rock radio had a midlife crisis and went on a bender.
1: (laughs) And it was to everybody's benefit. I just remember, likewise, being a kid that year. And the summer before had been, you know, King Biscuit Flower Hour to the nth degree. I mean, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel with live REO Speedwagon and bands like Duke Jupiter that were never going to break through, but they just kept pushing and pushing. Perpetual opening bands. Yeah, and then suddenly the next year. You've got Michael Jackson on rock radio. You had uh, Prince and the whole bit. But let's go ahead and hear our first track. This is Michael Jackson debuting Billie Jean live on CBS uh, Motown 25th anniversary special. The applause at the end is when he moonwalks. And that was Michael Jackson debuting Billie Jean on the Motown 25th anniversary special on CBS. That was just the moment that every kid in the country was talking about the next day at school. Every damn one.
2: And they were talking about it in Rolling Stone after the taping because there was a gap between the taping and the air. I think it was a month or something, and it was just like the the writer refers to the moonwalk. He doesn't have the vocabulary for it. The term moonwalk doesn't exist in the culture widely until that happens because suddenly he does this dance move. He's walking backward. Now, he didn't make this up. He learned this from uh, Jeff. Bob Fosse, I think. No, 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 from from Jeffrey uh, uh, Daniel. Okay. Jeffrey Daniel of Shalimar, and he had been a you know he'd been a championship dancer himself. He was a Soul Train dancer. That's how Shalimar came together. They were Soul Train dancers. So so he learns this from one of the best dancers in the world, like one of the best dancers in America. This is Michael Jackson, and he and he he brings this thing off on stage. He thinks that he's going to stay on his toes completely for a full few seconds, but he you know. He drops off and goes back up. Literally, nobody notices but him. <laughs> nobody notices this. And then afterward, in this is of course from uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan's great account. You know, he went backstage afterward, and Richard Pryor went up to him and said, "That's the greatest performance I've ever seen."
1: And it's hard to argue. It's 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 the the Beatles on Ed Sullivan of my lifetime. It was it was a yeah, big
2: absolutely. absolutely.
1: Big, big moment. I mean, you it's, know, the... It's Elvis, it then the Beatles, and then it's this, and then
2: it's Daft Punk at Coachella.
1: <laughs> yep. And uh and and this was at a time when broadcast television still had the massive numbers that it wouldn't have any longer by the time Daft Punk broke at Coachella. And we'll you know, probably never see an era with this kind of consolidation again. People like Madonna and Prince. I mean, Prince was Known. He'd had hit records. Like you said, a little red Corvette broke in 1983 on radio, but he it becomes a head, It broke ahead of beat it, by the way. Yeah. And, and lays the groundwork for beat it in a lot of ways. And, and, but he, by the end of the summer, he is a superstar on a level, not maybe not as big as the Beatles had been in the sixties or Elvis in the fifties, but comparable. I mean, everybody and their oh, mother-in-law, he was, bigger. Are,
2: he was as big or bigger
1: yeah everybody
2: completely ubiquitous this is the thing that people do not understand he was a, he wasn't ubiquitous for a specific time frame he was ubiquitous for 2 years completely ubiquitous for 2 years the thing that broke it was live aid he didn't have anything to do with live aid which would have been a real coup for him but i remember seeing some comment where it was like well thriller was 82 you can't write about this book, this in a book about 84. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. You know, the, you know the, the, the Nimrod calendarization of cultural history.
1: Yeah, because Thriller dominated 1984. It was just a subtext to everything else that happened. And um, yeah. And 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 you know, like you said, that they were milking it for single after single after single, and each single was a video that took you know massive production you know, and promotion. That's
2: not, that's not quite true. Only three videos.
1: Ah, well, go on. And let's talk about. I want what I want to do is talk about Michael Jackson, Prince, and Madonna, and and yes. their specific promotional strategies and the way they capitalized on these opportunities between radio. Television and and I did get a
2: field of radio earlier, so let me try to address that here. I'll talk about how that worked for each of them. Um, Prince had been, I mean, obviously Michael Jackson had been world famous for you know 13 years at that point, so he had a running start. He had been already, he was already a superstar before before even uh, off the wall. Uh, The the Jacksons albums that he was making at Epic. After they left the after they first left Motown and then got away from the two because they made two albums when they left Motown with Gamble and Huff, and those are not great albums, you know, those are not the best Jackson's work, those are not the best Gamble Huff's records. And they did okay, but it was when the Jackson's said, Look, we're adults, we're gonna do this ourselves and start producing themselves, like they get. They get like a nominal producer, but it's basically them, and it's basically Michael. It's not all; it's not just Michael, but it's Michael. You know, he's coming on strong. When you listen to those records, they're uh, specifically uh, "Triumph" and uh, "Destiny" was the first one in '78, and the "Triumph" is '80. And these, are, it's important to hear these records in content in context with thriller and off the wall because you can see the differences or you can hear the differences. Um, The solo records are Quincy Jones, who's an absolute maniac perfectionist who has the best players on call. There's no contest between the two as good as the Jackson's records are. And they're really good. They don't have the sparkle, you know, and radio goes for the sparkle. (laughs) Um, That's a big reason those records cross over to pop is because of Quincy Jones and Toto. You know, using all of those guys in total, using the best studio people he can. So that's that's the way he's doing it. The way Prince is making records is just by himself for the most part. Very, you know, very early take energy. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He's not leaving a lot of mistakes in, but he's not honing it the way that Quincy does. He's not making every single part shine perfectly unless he really wants to like there's there's the thrill of that spontaneity in there even when it's just him himself and by the time he makes purple rain he's working with the full band on most of the songs the band for you know half of the songs that the band is on are first takes literal first takes they're playing this wow. stuff live in the in the in, at first avenue for the first fucking time that's most of side 3 and so you know they have so he has that edge going on. He's much more, more of a rock person in that way than a pop person. Because if, if you will, pop means production and, sh- and polish, and rock means a little something more spontaneous and live, or at least the illusion thereof. And then there's Madonna, who is a pure pop product but starts out basically being an R&B singer. That's what she's marketed as. That's who she is. She spends 84 crossing over to white people, just like Lionel, just like Michael, just like Prince. And so she is working with Reggie Lucas on that first album. And, you know, it's a tightly polished thing. He knows what he's doing and he's got, he's got his crew. He's like, you know, he's doing what, um, he's basically doing what Quincy is doing. Uh, and then for the second album, which is Like a Virgin and released in 84, and it's important, and again, against the silly calendarization of culture, these are, these are two albums that totally dominate 84. And Like a Virgin is Nile Rodgers, and Nile Rodgers is as sharp and perfectionist a producer taskmaster as you can ask, but he's also a lot closer to the Prince model of spontaneous and live. There's a lot of first takes. He likes that feel. So those all have different sorts of strategies in terms of like getting on radio. They're all they're all blanketing radio in this period. And the reason in part that they're doing so is because of MTV. MTV gives all of them a head start. Not not. okay. let me rephrase that. MTV gives them all an advantage because once the video for borderline breaks through madonna goes mega but madonna is already making radio hits holiday was a club hit that broke that then went to radio um lucky star was a little bit later i'm trying to think of what the second single was Bef- be- there was something i think between holiday and borderline
1: uh there's everybody and burning up and then holiday and then lucky star Lucky Star. And then Borderline.
2: Borderline is last, that's right. So Lucky Star is just another performance video, the way Holiday is. You know, it's her and some dancers, and it doesn't do shit on MTV. Those, Those do better in the clubs, because the clubs are where those records break. DJs in clubs break the records, radio picks them up. It isn't until the last single of the album that she becomes an MTV star. Whereas Prince you can't really count I want to be your lover the same way you can't really count the Jacksons or the Jackson five. Michael is a solo star and that's like a whole other matter because he's more saleable than the group. You know, you know where all the talent is anyway. It's not like it's him and some backing people. It's just him. And and as I said, the records are just better. They're just better made. And
1: And let me jump in. Yeah, and, please. And play our next song. And this That's is bizarre. actually uh, Michael Jackson on stage with James Brown. This clip has Michael singing and dancing, and then they're about to call Prince up. And so this is a Michael Jackson with James Brown. And that was James Brown live with Michael Jackson improvising. I think kind of some play on please, please me, on please, 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 and they're about to call Prince up, who's going to play some guitar and dance. So this was just this historic moment from 1983 uh, when both those young men were on uh, in the in the theater while James Brown was playing. He's aware what of Michael. Don't... Go ahead.
2: Sorry. Well, what you don't see because this is audio is Michael whispering to James Brown. Prince's in the audience. <laughs>
1: And, and then has him called up, and, and you has can him hear, up. hear him calling up. And it, it's really our only chance to see the two in their prime on stage together at the same time. And yes. Michael comes out ahead. Prince overplays. And, uh, and He
2: overdoes it. He gets nervous. He clams up. He, you know, classic passive-aggressive behavior. Um, he's very, he wants to control the situation. He wants to control the scene. He's he has no control over this situation and he doesn't really know what to do.
1: Yeah, he plays his guitar for a little bit, doesn't really settle on anything. And then and then puts a guitar down. Right. Does some some dancing and everything. But let's let's Nothing get
2: back. It works. Nothing. Yeah. The audience is bewildered. <laughs>
1: and especially I would, also,
2: I would also go ahead and guess that part of the reason that the audience is bewildered is it's 83 and they don't know who Prince is yet.
1: Yeah, a good chunk of them don't. And, and, I mean, he has just come off of being booed off stage uh, opening for the Rolling Stones That's twice. Actually so. a,
2: well, no, that had happened two years earlier. At this point, he's coming off the 1999 tour, which was a great success.
1: Okay, cool. But the, the James Brown crowd is still not, you know, he's not the ubiquitous he's going to be after Purple Rain comes out. And, uh, yeah, and it was just the level of ubiquity. I mean, I can remember talking with my high school girlfriend's I don't want to say backward or redneck or whatever, but that's what a lot of people would say about them, lovely people. But they were country folks, and I swear every day we'd come home from school, they would be talking about Boy George. They would be talking about Prince. They would be talking about Cyndi Lauper. It was just the topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. But let's drill in a little bit to uh the, the the plan for thrillers so Michael Jackson and Quincy they make off the wall in 1979 they establish Michael Jackson as an adult they establish him as a superstar but it's still tied in with disco and we really haven't talked about the disco overhang specifically I mean which is funny because so much of
2: the power of that music in that year is disco it's rock bands adapting to disco or having adapted to disco in a lot of cases disco imperatives if not actual disco arrangements
1: absolutely and and they come together to do beat it and basically have the same crew same game plan um they start though, with a song that's very atypical of the record. It's a duet with an aging superstar who is gonna have a very bad nineteen eighty four but this this is kind of his last gap. Tell us about the girl is mine and Paul McCartney and the whole strategy. Well, that
2: had been the first single uh, from Thriller because they wanted the you know they wanted the middle of the road market. They wanted to tie up middle America before they hit them with the hard stuff. It was a very showbiz sort of idea. It wasn't a, it wasn't the sort of thing that like a rock band would do. I mean, it became the kind of thing in '84 that a rock band would do. But it wasn't generally, at that point, something a rock band would do. It was something that you would do if you were, you know, launching a romantic comedy. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) And Michael Jackson was a showbiz guy. He wasn't really a rock and roll guy at all. Like, he adapted to rock, and he could sing it, obviously. He could sing anything, I'm sure. But, like, and he obviously liked the music, too. That was a big part of it. Like, he wasn't just... He wasn't just saying this stuff because I, this is me guessing obviously, but I can't imagine that it was purely mercenary at that point. He was young and he had the world at his feet. If he wanted to do, if he didn't like rock music, he wouldn't have done it. And he was really, uh, you know, he was aiming for every conceivable uh, radio sector. At that point, the big radio formats were easy listening slash middle of the road, uh, which would it, which by that point had become adult contemporary AC, and it had been rebranded I think in the late in the early '70s because there were so many rock era things that fit onto it, like James Taylor or The Carpenters or Carol King, um, or like Stevie Wonder ballads. So they reframed it and made it a little bit more youthful in orientation because they started to realize the hippie generation is listening to mellower music. We can and we have that. We do that. So Michael Jackson was no different from anybody in that sense. You know, he listened to it, too. Um, and he liked it. Like, remember, this is the guy who actually broke down into tears singing uh, the She's Out of My Life, which is Really, not the kind of song that most adult men would hear and break down and cry. And that's no uh, mark on him for doing it. It's just like he had this remarkable sensitivity toward that sort of schmaltz.
1: And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk about the move into rock radio. And so, Michael, with the help of Sir Paul, not yet Sir Paul, but uh, the future Sir Paul, has conquered adult contemporary radio thriller is coming out strong but then then they shift gears and they attack rock radio right. with beat it tell us right. about this this is something that quincy jones conceived of with this specific strategy in mind
2: that's right he wanted a black version of the nax my sharona uh and got one actually really got one because you know it, it, what's catchier than my sharona well beat it That song's way catchier and my Sharona is insidiously catchy. So yeah, it's a, everybody won there. I will also mention very quickly that one of the strategies or one of the, one of the beneficiaries of the strategy we just mentioned, the AC strategy was Lionel Richie who also broke to middle America that way. He did the same thing. In fact, he, you could even say he beat Thriller to it because The first Lionel Richie album is earlier in 82, and that album does, you know, that album is the cream center of his, you know, entire career in a way. It's almost all ballads. There's almost nothing up tempo on it. And so he manages to really muscle in on the middle America market, the white, what the white bread market, if not fully, you know, racially white, that market is his. And Michael learned from him, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Lionel had this alliance with Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton and Barry Gibb is in the shadows uh, uh, helping alongside it. And so there was just this definite, you know,
2: is synergy at its at its most. I mean, that's really biz synergy right
1: there. Yeah. And as a young rocker, this was the kind of thing that was just making me gnash my teeth and pull my hair oh, out. <laughs> yes, yes. But when so when Michael goes from The Girl is Mine, which I had heard. But paid zero attention to. I mean, it was just, you know, not what I was into as a 14, 15-year-old. But then Beat It comes on and is absolutely undeniable. And the rumor that Eddie Van Halen is playing guitar just swept through my middle school and really confused the heck out of every mullet-haired rocker uh, going. But you could not not deny this song. I mean, nobody dared right everybody liked beat it and tell us about how it broke on the radio
2: well you were a little older than me too so when i because i was seven when this was happening six no eight i was seven eight years old when this was happening and it was just like cool you know everybody just knew michael jackson was cool and by the time of bad everybody knew michael jackson was not cool Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, but uh Reask the question, please.
1: Oh, I just, they specifically, you, you specifically talk about a big radio station, WPLJ. Okay.
2: Yes, thank and, you. So, and I, oh no, this is a great story. So I, this was very early on. I had already begun work. I'd started to do research for another project and I was like being overly literal about the amount of work I was doing. I was doing way too much research. I was literally going through all of the billboards from like 19, from the, from 1945, looking for specific names. And I was doing this with each issue and it was just dragging on and on. And I was like, this is pointless. I don't know if I want to do this. And I I had wanted to do 84 and then somebody had mentioned it. I just finished The Underground is Massive and I did a bunch of blurbs right after that. The first thing I did was all those blurbs that I wrote for the 1984 best best, uh, hit singles list that Rolling Stone did in 2014. So I was like, all right, I'm going to pursue this again. And almost immediately after, I forget precisely how I came across it. I was Googling for something or other. And I suddenly found on airchecks.com the full audio of the uh, Larry Berger monologue that I quote throughout that first chapter, I found it cold. It was just sitting there waiting to be discovered. And I listened to it and my head exploded. I couldn't believe it was like, this is the like, it was my book handed to me on a platter. This is your first chapter. So I, so like it became, I, I listened to the whole thing and then I immediately went back and Listened to it again slowly and transcribed
1: it. And and what that captures is this moment when AOR radio, like you said earlier, Lee Abrams, who's the guy single-handedly responsible for Stairway to Heaven and Freebird never coming off the radio. Like this is the guy that said, people want to hear this. They don't care that it's a little bit old. We're going to play it to death. And by this point, they had pretty much played that stuff to death. And yes. And – Lee Abrams has had to admit, okay, we need new stuff. This radio station, WPLJ, gets their hand uh, on beat. It. Go ahead. Not,
2: sorry, it's important to note WPLJ, and I'm sure you were going to note it, but WPLJ was not a Lee Abrams. Uh, he, they did not work with Lee Abrams. He yeah. was not a consultant, they didn't use outside consultancies.
1: Yeah, important point, and and it just speaks to the zeitgeist, where everybody knew that they had to do something new. Essentially, you had a a record industry that had overdone disco and then backlashed and walked away from it, that had rejected punk and barely tolerated – you know a watered down version they called new wave but there was all this energy that they hadn't caught up with and and, and here Paul, they were stuck
2: in the past completely stuck in the past
1: one of the things that he says in
2: this monologue is that they had done a they had done some research on their playlist and they figured out this is in 1983 that the mean year the average year of release for anything that they played is
1: 1971 ouch <laughs> And yeah, and that's the kind of short term business decision, you know, that works in the moment, but then it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't
2: lead anywhere, especially at this point when all the energy's gone elsewhere. Pop music is in the druthers. The biz is in the tank. There's no tour support, meaning that the kind of music that these stations play has nowhere to go.
1: Yeah, Arena Rock has essentially been decapitalized And they don't know what to do So they they get a hold of this record, beat it, and they play it um, And the first week, the audience hates it Second week, the responses are in the middle And by the third week, they love it And Steph tells me it's time to play our next track And this is Prince playing Purple Rain Live at the American Music Awards in 1985
0: I never meant to call you See you
1: and that was Prince doing Purple Rain, the title song from his hit movie at the American Music Awards in 1985. But let's get back to Michael. Because I've never heard of anything like this where a radio station is playing something they know their audience hates it, but they stick with it and they and they ride it out. I've heard of d j s doing this in clubs uh Larry Levan playing the first acid House track comes to mind, but um they they you know push it on their audience and it's beat it, so it succeeds. Then they drop Billy Jean and this is what's incredible to me about this is you think of Michael Jackson. I mean, he's beyond genre now, but but at this point, you would have thought of Michael Jackson as an R&B performer, and you would assume that he would start with the R&B track and 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 start with the bass and expand from there. But he goes exactly backwards. "Billie Jean" is the big R&B track, and that debuts on CBS and then on MTV, and. We've done an episode of Walter Yetnikoff, the then president of CBS Records, and he's the guy who, who signed away the Jacksons from Motown, brought him to Epic, nurtured them along, let Michael do do production, let Michael go solo, um, supported Michael with Quincy Jones, and had been very successful. Did Yetnikoff have to threaten MTV to play Billie Jean or not?
2: That's a really great question, because
1: Yetnikoff has claimed
2: he has... He did. I mean, I think everybody wants to make themselves look like the hero here, and I don't blame them, but I do like what the producer, and I quote him in the book, From a really great podcast, the sadly short lived podcast. I'm forgetting the title now. I don't I don't have the book in front of me, unfortunately, but it was a really good podcast. And they did the early years of MTV. And, you know, this stuff like that stuff's been covered to death. I'm here. I am covering it again. But um, I also just found that particular quote, which is the producer saying that was going to get on MTV no matter what. It was the best video anybody had made. And I find that convincing too. I find all of it convincing. I don't really want to take a side here.
1: And and fair enough. I mean, you know, MTV had been segregated. Rick James kind of killed his career railing against this, and Billie Jean was their opportunity to redeem themselves. Like it was, it was irresistible. It was already a hit record. He had already crossed over to rock radio with Beat It, and. Plus you had CBS pushing this for all it was worth. So it was just the perfect moment. And, and, and it's weird because it goes from Michael Jackson on MTV being transgressive in early 1983. By the end of 1984, Michael Jackson is MTV. They're incessantly talking about the thriller video directed by John Landis, who had made animal house and the blues brothers. And, you know, both madonna with desperately seeking susan and prince with purple rain have these hollywood movie vehicles and billy and michael does not have a movie but he has the thriller video which is basically a movie
2: right yes it's a short film it's basically like an old hollywood short um yeah like he you know he's owning the landscape, and this becomes the model for how other people will do it um to greater or lesser degrees. Prince does it by actually making a film because you know. He's Prince and damn it, he's more talented than Michael Jackson or anybody on earth. He's going to do it. Um, you know, with Madonna, there is certainly that impulse as well. She makes Desperately Seeking Susan that year um, or in 84. And that comes out in early. They rush the release because they're, you know, because as somebody put it, you know, Madonna might stop being famous any second now. <laughs> and we you should uh, a little about that too, because fame as its own quantity was a lot of what Madonna's appeal was about. You know, she became famous for being famous in a sense, not just as a musician, and certainly as a provocateur. Because there she is, flashing her underwear on the MTV Awards, um, accidentally, but it's you know, it's still a big deal. There's a firestorm, and all it does is make her seem more cool. You know, um, so that sort of thing, and I. Uh, I I think that becomes something that Prince flirts with and ultimately, you know, tosses aside. He's he's really not in it for the fame, even though he loves being famous. You know, he's in it really, he's truly in it, I think, for the music. And I truly think he's in it for the razzle-dazzle part of show business. But the actual, like, you know, he's remote. He doesn't want to hobnob.
1: Yeah, Prince isolates himself and creates this, you know, Greta Garbo style mystique, whereas Madonna is everywhere. And you talk in the book about her rise and how she cultivated these relationships, whether it's being backstage at the Jackson's Victory Tour and then walking away with their management, <laughs> their drummer and their keyboard player at the end of it. Or it's, you know, having a romance with Mark Kamens, who's a DJ at Interior which is one of the biggest dance clubs in New York. He's the guy who gets her in front of Seymour Stein and on Sire Records. Then she has a relationship with Jellybean Benitez, who remixes Holiday and or produces Holiday, remixes the other singles, and makes that her club breakthrough. And I think it's interesting. She's the only one of these big three figures who broke through the dance scene. Um, well, you know, I, let's be
2: that's not actually fair to say, because both of the others and it isn't just because they did so well on the dance charts. But the Jackson's career was revitalized by disco like they were in the druthers before Dancing Machine and Dancing Machine was the first album that was made for club play the, that where all the songs were segwayed disco style. So the Jacksons very much owe their career, their later career to disco. And Prince broke through the discos for sure.
1: But both of those are multiple years in the past at this point. I was just You're specifically right. talking right. about this, the, the oh, big albums okay. of 1993, yes. 84. Yes.
2: Well, she's just the most recent by far. They've both been at it for many, many years with some visibility, you know?
1: Makes sense. And let's go ahead and hear Madonna's Like a Virgin uh, performance at the MTV Video Music Awards 1984. You won't see the panties flashing, but you might hear it. Was Madonna like a virgin live on the MTV VMAs in 1984. You know, and then I ahead. heard any splashing.
2: <laughs> <I'm,
1: I'm> ex- <laughs> and it's so exciting. And one thing that you get in the book is that you tell the story of how it was perceived at the time by the people who were there. Yes. They thought it was a career killer, not a career maker. Right.
2: Yeah. That was too much. That was too far. Again, that's that's the obvious sexism of the time in play because you know, as opposed to that of now. But the the obvious sexism of that is, well, you know, if if Mick Jagger had done it, everybody would be like, we venerate Jim Morrison, right? In rock, like the rock culture in that era venerates Jim Morrison for flashing the audience, in some sense. There's some veneration going on. When she does it, it's a career killer. It's very, very double-sided.
1: Except once people saw it on TV, it was immediately popular, and there was no <laughs> Janet Jackson style backlash. There was no CBS executive. <laughs> well,
2: no, uh, right, because Madonna was like, So what? This is Madonna's secret weapon throughout that whole era. She's just, everybody is ready to excoriate her for, you know, having done nude modeling or for having been, you know, for having flashed the audience by accident or, you know, for having been. The girlfriend of many people who had helped her along the way her whole attitude is fuck you so what and And, that's and and it neutralized them because no one had done that maybe since like may west
1: yeah and it absolutely works it's the pattern we've seen since then everybody from howard stern to donald trump uh, and many republican politicians have, have used that successfully but and and the book I can't I mean we cannot do justice to this book in one hour you cover so much you cover the American underground you cover Bruce Springsteen and Huey Lewis you know uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the everything is in there the British invasion the police Duran Duran Wham Frankie goes to Hollywood you talk about House you talk about uh, Larry Levin and the Paradise Garage but I want to talk about a debacle that happened in this year and it'll tie into the Live Aid and I want to talk about Michael Jackson and David Bowie's Dancing in the Streets video which was. You mean Mick Jackson and David Bowie. Yeah, Mick Jagger. I don't even know what I said. But yeah, Mick Jagger and David Bowie. And this single-handedly kills Mick Jagger as a solo superstar, because he was... Uh,
2: I think Mick Jagger had done a fine job of killing himself as a solo superstar. <laughs> I don't think he needed David Bowie's help. Nobody was cottoning on to, Mike, to Mick Jagger's solo superstar, except maybe Jan.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, there was big interest in record, the record biz, and the media, and and in Jagger. But tell us about this video they make. How it was supposed to tie in with Live Aid, and it was their charity video for
2: Live Aid. They made a remake of "Dancing in the Streets" by Martha and the Vandellas. The 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 track itself. There's this amazing quote that I that I found that I used in my book that I found in uh, the great Chris O'Leary's book on Bowie. Uh, in this era, uh, Ashes to Ashes, and he talks about how one of Bowie's engineers or producers, or I forget who, but somebody who works with Bowie, hears this track and is just like, puts his head in his hands. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's just like, yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> it's 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 just a rotten piece of music. It's not a good record. It is everything bad about the 80s. In some sense, it's fascinating as an artifact in the way that like a lot of bad 80s records are. You know, we I think there's this weird posthumous, like sort of, you know, the, we built this city has become the plan nine of outer space of pop.
1: <laughs> no
2: doubt about that. And like you know, people are just sort of into these things now because they're so 80s and bad. Like, all like I th- I feel like people take heart more seriously, that era of heart more seriously. Like late 80s heart than they ever did. Ever, ever, ever did. You know what I mean? Because and I and I can see why, because they're like cirque movies. <laughs>
1: I hadn't thought about that way, but yes, yeah, so I can see that. I mean, yeah, cause heart had it. I hadn't either. I had it <laughs> off the top of my head. It's true though. Yeah. Like, because it's like this
2: florid version of, you know, female passion that is so overstated and male directed that it's campy. And we look at, it takes a long time to see that stuff as, you know, an object to art.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, you have to recover from the overexposure You have to recover from it
2: to see it whole. That's exactly right.
1: And and the thing about the Jagger and Bowie, Bowie video is that, you know, it's Live Aid. It's the biggest media event of the year. It's this culmination of these multiple charitable events, both in England and the states. That do they know it's Christmas in England and We Are the World in the states? And yes. and then Bob Geldof organizes Live Aid. And you know, we, I could do a whole series on Live Aid. You've got Queen's triumphant performance. You've got Led Zeppelin's disastrous. I I'd be happy
2: to do an entire episode on Live Aid. Well,
1: I will call you on that. And you know, Led Zeppelin gets back together badly. The Who gets back together badly. <laughs> And then Mick Jagger and Bowie put out this video, and for some reason, this thing was played endlessly. Like, I I know that Night Tracks played it every week forever because my hometown didn't have MTV. All we had was Night Tracks on USA once a week. And they're filling up precious, precious airtime, you know, with this terrible Jagger and Bowie video. And you talk about this in particular around a Billy Squire song, Rock Me Tonight. And some people argue that video, over, video overexposure kills careers faster than anything else. Do you think that's true? At that point, yes.
2: I mean, at that point, it was... There were certain things that just seemed flimsy and became jokes pretty quickly. And that Billy Squire video is example a i remember while i was working on the book there was a facebook argument uh not argument quite it wasn't it wasn't badly intended it was i had you know this had come up and you know billy squire losing his rep and they were like somebody who works in the business and is very smart was like i call bullshit i don't believe that's true And I said, I'm afraid you're wrong because (laughs) because I have the three quarter page billboard article on it for your delectation at this link. (laughs) You had your And she was she was just shocked, just as I was when I first encountered that three quarter page billboard piece. Well.
1: Yeah. And I can remember that happening in real time because Billy Squire had built up this reputation as one of the, you know, kind of right there with Rick James is one of the cool things that was happening in the early 80s that broke through. There was great music going on in the underground, but stuff that actually on the radio. Yeah. But stuff that made it on the radio, Billy Squire was this sort of rare and we didn't know quite what to make of it. He didn't fit in with the classic rock thing and he wasn't new wave, but it rocked and and we liked the sound and people learned how to play it on their guitars. And then Rock Me Tonight comes out and is just instant big brother heckle zone. Like anybody who had gone out and like bought a Billy Squire t-shirt or an album. Suddenly shamed. Yes, and and brutally shamed. And and you know, the Jagger Bowie video to me. Bowie oh, yeah. had established himself as a superstar with *Let's Dance*. He was on the cover of *Time* magazine back when that was a really big deal. Jagger has this, you know, long-awaited solo debut coming out, and to me, that just killed both of them for the rest of the '80s. And the last bit of bad news from 1984 I want to get into is Paul McCartney. What went wrong for for Paul? And the end of the year yeah. to wrap up the episode.
2: I have talked about, it's funny, you're the first person to ask me expressly about Paul's, you know, anise, uh <laughs> miserableness. Um, he had maybe the worst year of his career. Maybe not his life. I'm sure the year that Linda died is the worst year of his life. But, you know, a really awful year. He starts it by going to prison, going to jail for possession of pot in Japan. He takes... Uh, You know, Linda brings some cannabis into her purse at the airport or has some in her purse. And it's a it's a it's a catastrophe because the Japanese did not look kindly upon those things. Um, So he you know, it's a bad scene. And then he puts out his long awaited film. Give my regards to Broad Street, which features newly recorded arrangements. Rearranged, they're not even rearranged. It's just newly recorded versions of Beatles songs with the original arrangements. R- Ringo is in the film but refuses to play on the rearrangements. And Good call Ringo. I mean, like that is some that is some loyalty. That is some real friendship. I'm gonna do this but not that. <laughs> And, and some friendship in return. I'm going to let you.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of the Ringo George Harrison TV appearance they did a few years later where they were talking about who was suing who at a particular time. But they were having lunch anyway. But um, – but... I mean,
2: you know, it's business. <laughs> they, they If anybody knows it's just business at this point in, that, in, in their lives, it's them.
1: Yeah. And, and – but then – Paul's one hit of the year was was a duet with Michael Jackson. What does Michael Jackson do to Paul McCartney in 1984? Well, he, I mean, he laps him?
2: Oh, yes, I know what you mean. Culturally, he laps him, but you're referring to the deal that happens actually in 85. Yeah, yeah, my bad. 85 is when this happens, which is when Michael Jackson outbids uh, Paul and Yoko Ono For the Beatles catalog, for the Lennon-McCartney songs, Uh, Michael owns them now. And Paul is livid because Paul had been Michael's mentor. He had shown Michael that you could make real good money, serious money, by investing in song catalogs. So he did. He invested in song catalogs. (laughs) (laughs) He invested in the Beatles' song catalog. (laughs) And the reason, you know, he and and Paul took it as a personal betrayal. And Paul is a very, you know, you don't hear a lot of bad talk out of Paul McCartney about many people. You really don't No. So he like he never made a secret of the he has never made a secret of his bitterness over that.
1: Yep, he, he, he talked about it for another 20 years. And we could talk about this book for another 20 years. My guest has been Michael Angelo Matos. The book is Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And I'm serious, we didn't touch at all on your coverage of hip hop, which is excellent. Your coverage of heavy metal and hair metal, which is excellent. You talked Def Leppard, Motley Crue, uh, the death of Razzle of Hanoi Rock. So there's a lot of great stories here. So thanks so much for coming on and giving Thank us you. a capsule version.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at com. Thursday, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss the long apprenticeship of Rick James. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.